0: This 37. Let's again uh, look to God in prayer, and let's pray. Lord, what a joy it is uh, to lift up our voices in song, to hear uh, our fellow uh, Christians also join us in the praise of your matchless, holy name. Um, Lord God, we pray and uh, we ask uh, for your activity or work just now. We are a people reliant upon the Holy Spirit for for all good things. So our prayer is the the same prayer as the psalmist, do not be silent, O Lord, that we might praise your name. Do not be silent. So we ask that you would help us to understand uh, uh, Genesis 37, Lord God. Help us uh, to uh, hear how you apply it by your Holy Spirit to our lives. Help us to see Christ here, uh, that we might learn more, but that we might worship uh, all the more uh, the Lord Jesus Christ, our Lord, our Savior, our friend. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, if you have been a Christian for any length of time, I'm sure you would agree that as we mature, And as we grow up in the Christian faith, what we desire from a worship service changes. As we grow up in the Christian faith, what we desire from this moment, from a worship service, it changes. Do do you follow, do you see what I mean when we are young in the faith or when we're immature as Christians? Largely, our desires in church kind of revolve around ourselves. The immature Christian, the young Christian, what, what do they want? They uh, want to maybe call the shots in a worship service. They want to be entertained in a worship service. They want to hear only that which will be of direct relevance to their own situation and o- or their own life. How does that develop? How does that change? As we mature in faith... Does not our desire move ever closer to the God that we serve and the God that we love instead of being preoccupied with ourselves, a mature believer is it not true a mature believer comes to church, desperate to encounter, desperate to focus on, and desperate to worship the one true and loving God indeed. Do the words of John chapter 12 not sum it up? Do you remember the Greeks? And they come to Philip, and what do they say? Sir, we would see Jesus. Sir, we would see Jesus. Is that not the cry of the mature believer as they come to church? Our desire is to look to God, to look to our Savior in worship. Well, as we turn back to this uh, portion of Scripture that we've read, I genuinely think that you and I should be enthused about this. Why? Because in Genesis chapter 37, you and I learn about our God. Did you hear it? We learn about God. That yes, this portion of Scripture that on the surface of things tells us about Jacob, tells us about Joseph, tells us about the brothers, doesn't it? On the surface of things, yes, But here, we will be taught by God. More than that, we will be taught about God. Isn't that an exciting thing, to be taught by God, about God, about who He is, and about His works. And I think we'll see three main truths in this portion of Scripture. So we here are going to encounter something of God's care. That's the first thing we'll see, God's care. Secondly, we'll see something of God's sacrifice in Genesis 37. And then thirdly, we'll see something of God's providence. So for those who are taking notes, we've got God's care, we've got God's sacrifice, and we've got God's providence. So if if you have a copy of Scripture, and if it's open to Genesis chapter 37, let's think about the first of those, and that is God's care. Genesis 37, and God's care. Now, um, last week I mentioned telling my children often that they're not allowed to say the word hate. Didn't I? Uh, One thing I think the parents in the room, again, will empathize with me. Another thing that we often say as parents is, don't stare. (laughs) We will maybe see an unusual-looking person out in the streets of Dundee, and we'll be saying, the kids, Stop! Stop staring! Stop staring! Uh, Well, just as last week the rule was there to be broken, I think uh, it's the same uh, this morning. Because, friends, in order to see in this portion of Scripture something of God's care, I think what we have to do right now is stare. I think you and I, to see something of God's care, we have to first stare at Jacob in the text— And then we have to turn our gaze and we need to stare at Joseph. Will you do this with me? We stare at Jacob first to see something of God in his care. And then we stare at Joseph. So first of all, Jacob. Now, do you agree with this, that the start of this section seems to be very similar to the way that the previous section began? Do you notice this? That just this last week, you had Joseph's 11 brothers. What were they doing last week? Do you remember we started things that the 11 brothers were out in the fields tending sheep? Remember that? Isn't that what we've got here? Kind of a similar thing. And then what happens is that Jacob sends Joseph to his brothers. Now, I get it. Maybe you're, you're looking at me and you're thinking, that does not seem particularly spectacular. It does, It's probably a detail that my granny would have said, that does not set the heather, doesn't he set the heather on fire? That, that Jacob sends Joseph to his brothers. Okay, it seems unspectacular. But maybe there is something of a spark when you notice the location that's mentioned in verse 12. So the brothers, where are they? They're at Shechem. Now, does that, does that mean anything to us? It's going to. Because I would ask you, can you just flick back a couple of pages to Genesis 34? Just really quickly, if you've got a Bible, go back to Genesis 34. Now, if you don't have a copy of the Bible with you, let me just tell you what the other people are seeing in front of them. Okay, so in Genesis 34, we learn of a daughter. We've been focusing on the sons of Jacob, haven't we? In Genesis 34, we learn of a daughter of Jacob. So this is a sister of these 11 brothers. And what we learn, not to put too fine a point on it, is that this daughter of Jacob is defiled and she is abused by who? By the prince of Shechem. Okay, now... When these 11 brothers hear about it, do we remember the story? When the brothers hear about it, these 11 brothers take matters into their own hands. And not only do they trick the men of Shechem, what do they do? Do you remember? These 11 brothers, they take the matters in their own hands and they slaughter They slaughter all of the warriors and all of the men of Shechem. An impulsive act, an act that is thoroughly condemned by whom? By their father, Jacob. Now, you've got the Bible in your hand? As you go back, go back with me to our text in Genesis 37. And what do you notice? You notice it doesn't take you very long to get back to Genesis 37. So this event with Dinah... This has just happened. And so, surely all of us in the room can see why Jacob is concerned in Genesis 37. Can we not see it? You what? He hears, my sons are tending the flock where? In Shechem. I mean, okay, the warriors have been killed. Okay, the men of Shechem have been killed. But other groups around about can seek revenge. They can avenge that act, can they? And so is it not amazing to see what Jacob does? Like despite the fact that his sons have utterly rebelled against him at Shechem, and despite the fact that his sons have utterly dishonored Jacob's name at Shechem, such is Jacob's love for them, his concern for them. What does Jacob do? He sends to them his beloved. He sends to them his favored son. Now, surely already the lesson to us about our God is evident, Christian friends. Surely it is. But let's rest on it just for a moment or two, shall we? See, I think you and I are all too aware of how our culture in Scotland, how it loves to portray our God. Are you on Twitter? You'll know this if you're on Twitter, how God has portrayed the God of the Bible. But it's the case in wider media as well. What is God? God is portrayed as a mean grandfather. Isn't that right? That God is portrayed. It's even worse than that, though. Portrayed as this old doddery but critical, critical figure. Isn't he? God portrayed as one who is impatient and overly judgmental. And we all know that's absolutely ridiculous. But is this not the case? that actually all too often, you and I, even us as people, we can fall into similar inaccurate misconceptions about the God that we worship. Isn't that the case in your own life and my own life as well? We know better. But you and I fall into assuming that because of our failings, because of our sin, we assume that God all the time can just be impatient with us. That God is just disappointed with us because of our sin. We fall into thinking that God is just constantly angry with us. But as you come through the doors this morning, you open God's word, you stare at Jacob. Christian friend, what are you reminded about today? Are you not shown what God is really like? Please hear me. God the Father is one who loves you so much, Christian friend, filled with such care. What has he done? Despite your rebellion against him, despite the way that you dishonor his name, what has he done? Look at Jacob. God the Father has sent to us his one and only son, despite our rebellion. Is it not the case that you stare at Joseph, uh, Jacob with me just now and you have John three sixteen ringing in your ears? You look at Jacob, what do you see? For God the Father loved the world so much. What has he done for us? He he gave, yes. God the Father has sent to us his son whom he loved. So we stare at Jacob and surely we see something of the love of God the Father. Can you remember what we were going to do? We were going to stare. Don't stare we're going to stare. We're going to stare at Jacob, but then we change our gaze, don't we? And we stare for a moment at Joseph. Now, as we do that, as you turn your gaze just now in the text to Joseph, I think it's probably best that we call to mind uh, what we already know and what we saw last time out. So, I'll ask you, were you in church last week? As I, as I look around, I know that probably the majority of you were here last week. Do you remember, if you were here last week, the level of hatred that we saw last week? Do you remember? Does that, did that stick with you? Surely it did. We saw the hatred for Joseph from whom? From his brothers, do you remember? The level of hatred because of what? How he was favored because of his robe? I think we saw, was it four times three times or four times, in increasing measure, we saw loathing. We saw how those 11 brothers, they really hated hated Joseph. Now, in light of that, as you look and stare at Joseph, isn't it amazing what you see here? Uh, Look with me, first of all. We'll put it up on the screen, the end of verse 13. But have a look at Joseph's willingness. If you've got the Bible or on the screen, have a look at the end of this. Just think about, first of all, what he's been asked, Joseph. So his dad has asked him to travel a long way. To travel where? To a really dangerous place. (laughs) And then the worst of it he's been asked to go to a group of men who hate him, hate him, and then read it. Look at the last words there. What does Joseph say? He says, here I am. I'll go. Send me. Isn't it? Who's it echoing? Echoing Abraham. But doesn't it, in your mind, send you to Isaiah? Isaiah. Here are words of of immediate eagerness. Despite all of that hatred, Joseph's saying, I'll I'll go, send me. So we stare and we see his willingness. But then also, I want you to to note his determination. See, if you follow it, think about what happens. So what happens with Joseph? He said, I'll go. And so he goes. And he goes to Shechem. But did everybody notice that he gets to Shechem and his brothers are not there? So what would you do? Can I tell you what I would do? (laughs) If my dad sent me to a group of people that hated me, (laughs) and my dad said to me, Andy, go to Shechem and, uh, you know, speak to these people who hate you, and I got to Shechem, and they weren't there, let me tell you for nothing, I'm going home again. (laughs) Like, Dad, I tried my best, whatever, you know, they weren't there, the brothers weren't there, fine, I'm back. Do you notice, do you notice, what Joseph does, he learns that they are in Dotham, and listen to me carefully, he goes after them. Joseph seeks after his brothers. Does that amaze you? Listen, if it doesn't amaze you, it ought to amaze you, because this week I tried to work out the geography. You know, you get your phone out, you do the Apple Maps thing, and you try to work out what's going on. Now, listen, listen. So the, the journey that Joseph takes to follow after and seek after his brothers. That is the equivalent of you and me after this service. You've got to tell me how you feel about this. After the service, the journey here is the equivalent of us walking to the center of Glasgow. That is the journey that Joseph took to seek after his brothers. That's the equivalent. And so surely here, if we are seeing a shadow of the love the Father has for us, oh, people, and do you not also see a shadow of the love that God the Son must have for us? If you are new to Christianity and new to this church, you need to understand what is happening. Before the creation of the world, in what theologians call the covenant of redemption, What has happened but God the Son has put his hand up? Before the creation of the world, God the Son has willingly agreed to this mission from his Father. And think about what the mission was. That though that was a mission to go to a people who are enmity with God, though it was a mission to go to people who hate God, hate the Son of God, God the Son puts His hand up and says, Here I am. I will go. The Lord Jesus Christ the Son, He has come to seek and to save the lost. So we see something of God's care. Second of all, we see something of God's sacrifice. Now, I'm pretty sure it's the case that as a congregation, St. Peter's has joined the rest of the world in the last couple of weeks and being outraged by the recent events in ukraine that's the case isn't it as i've gone around speaking to the congregation it's clear we want to talk about it we have been outraged by what's happened i think one aspect of that is our revulsion at particular details that emerge about uh, the situation in ukraine you know how it works don't you on your phone or in a paper or on the TV, what happens is that you read or hear a little detail, don't you? We all hear a little phrase about the conflict, and it's the phrase and it's the detail that seems to bring the reality of the atrocity home, isn't it? You hear of a Russian tactic, or you read, come on, you read of just the casualties in one day, And that little phrase, that little detail, it brings it all home, doesn't it? Well, at this point, we come to this gross mistreatment that Joseph um, faces from his brothers. And it's complicated. Don't you agree, the mistreatment, there's so many levels and there's so many things going on. It's very, very complicated. So I think the best way of us understanding it is actually by you and I noticing just a few, just three little phrases in this chapter that really stand out and seem to bring the mistreatment home to us. So will you do that with me? Very briefly, I just want you to notice three very short phrases that bring this home. So for the first, let's look at verse 18. Chris, if you could put that up, that'd be great. Verse 18. Now, before you read it, don't read it. Don't go there. Remember the situation before you get to the phrase. What's the situation? Joseph sacrificially has traveled, I was going to say to Glasgow. It's not to Glasgow, but you know the idea. He has walked sacrificially. He's been sent. He's going to people out of love, people who hate him. Isn't that an incredible thing? Incredible thing. Now read it. How do they respond? Verse 18. Verse 18. They saw him from afar, and before he came near, they conspired against him, no, read on, they conspired against him to kill him, to kill him. Now, I think you can see what's going on. If you were here last week, you certainly can. He's wearing his robe. (laughs) It's brightly colored, richly ornamented. You can see this guy from a mile off, (laughs) can't you? But friends, this is their kid brother. I mean, this is their youngest sibling. And there's not a desire to protect him in this dangerous place. There's not a desire to see him. And it's just almost unfathomable to think that there's not even a desire to hear why he's made this journey. There's nothing. What happens? This uh, desire to murder him, it overtakes him. Isn't it incredible? Now, at this point here, Reuben, uh, he intervenes. Does the, I'd love to know what you think of Reuben. Um, You're maybe clapping your hands thinking, good on, Reuben. But come on, aren't you with me to say that it's at least half-hearted and isn't it just possibly entirely self-seeking? Who's Reuben? What do we know about Reuben? He's, he's the eldest brother, isn't he? So remember, he is the one who has to give an answer to his father in this situation, okay? What else do we know about Reuben from Genesis 35? He has slept recently with his father's concubine. So is it not possible that Reuben's just trying to cover his back here in this suggestion? Regardless, the brothers listen. And instead of killing Joseph instantly, did you get the details of what they do? If you didn't, please listen. What they do instead of killing him immediately is they strip him off that robe, that garment that was so precious. They take it off him. Where do they throw him? They throw him in one of these pits that existed in that part of the world. And it was a pit. They was cut out of the rock, out of the limestone for gathering water. They throw Joseph, their youngest brother, into this pit. And it's at that point there that we get to a second phrase. And I'm going to just go ahead and say this to you, that I think this is the lowest point of this chapter. So can we put up verse 25? Oh, just read the beginning or look at that. They sat down to eat. They sat down to eat. What do you think of that? Isn't that horrendous? Even if you're thinking it's horrendous, I, I reckon it's actually worse than many of us might realize. Because in, later on in Genesis 42... The brothers reflect on this very moment. And do you know what we learn from Genesis 42? At this precise moment, in that pit, Joseph is begging for his life. Isn't that an incredible detail? So their youngest sibling, they've thrown him away, is starved to death, and he's crying out, and he's begging to his siblings. And what do they do? They sit down to have some lunch. Now, here things change gear. I need you to understand that where they were, Dothan was on this trading route, one of the main trading routes in the ancient world, and it, it ran all the way from Damascus in the north, and it ran all the way right down to Syria. Uh, sorry, from Damascus right down to Egypt in the in the south. So, as they're eating, you can see what happens. Some traders, Midianite, Ishmaelite traders, appear on the scene, and yeah. Just in case you're doubting it, you did read this correctly. What happens? They change their plans, and what happens? They, they, what is it? They sell. They sell their youngest brother for 20 pieces of silver the price of a slave. They sell their youngest brother. And then we come to the third and the last of these phrases. So verse 32. So you followed it. The brothers try and cover up their act, don't they? What do they do? They take a goat. They kill the goat. They put the blood of the goat on the garment. They give this. They present this garment to Jacob, their father. And then you've got this. And this is verse 32. And as you read it, do you see why it's highlighted? I'll read it to you. So they bring this blood-splattered coat to their father. And they say this. What's odd about this, friends? They say, please identify whether it is your son's robe or not. What is unusual about that? Do you see? Such is their hatred that they cannot bring themselves to use Joseph's name. Such is the level of hatred they cannot even bring themselves to call Joseph their brother. Are we not as a congregation together right now appalled at this? Please tell me you are. There is wickedness here to almost unimaginable extremes. But what do we do with that? Come on, St. Peter's. Maybe we can look at this and we can just look in awe and wonder at man's evil. But what do we do at St. Peter's with this portion of Scripture here, with all of these details? What do we do? No, no. I think we could look at the practical lessons that are here. We could walk down that moralistic avenue, because there's certainly lessons that we need to to learn here, aren't there? I mean, don't we here see something of the danger of allowing jealousy, envy, bitterness for our fellow man to fester? As we look at this, we see that it can grow out of All control. If we do that, we see that. We also surely see that you and I, as Christians, we need to do better than Reuben, don't we? We need to do better. We need to take a proper stand when we see the people in our lives pursue wrongdoing. And that's fine, that's great, but why are we in this place this morning? Come on. The mature Christians in here, we want to come, we want to see our God. And so, Christian friends, can you not see why God in His infinite wisdom has preserved all of the details of this for His church throughout the centuries in His inerrant word? Because here, do we not see something of the cost God's love has borne for His church? In all of these wicked details, in all of it, are you not pointed to what your Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, has endured to win your salvation Don't you see it? The Lord Jesus Christ has come to his brothers. And what has Christ endured? Almost immediately, they conspired against him. Almost immediately, there was this desire to take from Jesus his life, wasn't there? What else? The Lord Jesus Christ comes to his brothers and they take him. And they sell him to Gentiles, as here, for a few pieces of silver, the price of a slave. And God the Son comes willingly to his brothers. And what do we do? We grab him and we strip off him his garment and we throw him in a pit, a grave, cut out of the rock. And if this similarities here are not striking enough? Is it not actually the dissimilarity that grabs you and is most arresting because where Joseph would have had absolutely no idea that that was to come for him? What is true of God the Son? He knew full well what lay ahead as he approached Jerusalem and such is his love for you, his care for you, that the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, embraced it all, endured it all, submitted to it all to secure your salvation. We see here the the care God has for you, but we see the cost of it too. And then we'll close with a third thing very briefly. We see the care, we see the sacrifice. The third thing is God's providence. Do you like that word, providence? Uh, I think in churches like ours. So, presbyterian churches if you like or Reformed churches we use that word a lot don't we and the providence of almighty god we use it a lot i think for the benefit of the younger people in here and for those who are maybe new to christianity maybe you and i need to define our terms do we the providence what's the providence of god we don't believe in luck we don't believe in karma do we We don't believe in chance. We don't believe in fate. What do we believe in? We believe in the governance. We believe in the good governance of God, don't we? So we believe that through direct action, but also by the use of second causes, our God ordains and orchestrates what? Everything. Everything that comes to pass. Would you like a definition Let's have a definition, because I love it. Be selfish here. But this is the confession, the Westminster Confession. We're asking, what is providence? Wait, you will love it too. Ready? God, the creator of all things, he does uphold, direct, dispose, and govern. All creatures... All actions and all things, from the greatest to the least, and he does so by his most wise and holy providence. It's a cute definition, isn't it? Isn't it wonderful? Now, when we think about, when you think about the story of Joseph as a whole, now, you know it, we've established that from Genesis 37 to 50. As you think about the story as a whole, I reckon there's one phrase in that whole story that probably is familiar to most of us in the room. Okay, I'll not get you to fill in the blanks as I pause, but you know it, it's in Genesis 50 verse 20. So, uh, Joseph is speaking to his brothers. Do you know this? Joseph speaking to the brothers, and he says, "To the brothers, as for you, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good." Joseph speaking to his brothers, "You meant that for evil, but God meant it for good." Now, do you see what that means for this particular section of scripture that we are in here? Though this seems like, what, a litany of meaningless, unchecked, evil acts? Is that what it seems like to you? That's just a string of wickedness in this chapter. Though it's like that, what that verse tells us is that all the way through here, God is active. That he is using all of these atrocities in order to bring Joseph all the way down to Egypt safely then to have him rise up again so that he might save his people from this famine that was to come. Now, I know time is short. I know we're just at the end here. But I just want to draw your attention just in just a word to instances that really should have blown your mind as you read this section and see God's hidden hand. So let's put verse 15 up. Can I ask you, did you notice the man in this chapter? <laughs> Believe me, in sermon preparation, I've had to wrestle with this man. Do you notice him? So Joseph goes to Shechem. His brothers are not there. And then Scripture gives all of this unusual emphasis to this guy. (laughs) This unnamed bloke who just appears exactly the right time. He's got all of the details. He knows exactly where the brothers are. And he's able to point Joseph in the right direction. You can't tell me you don't look at that and think, wow, the hidden hand of the Almighty God. Do you see his provenance? Then you think about the meal. I've labored the fact that I think it is a disgusting meal. Just an atrocious thing for them to do is sit. What disinterest in their brother to sit and have a meal as he starves there to death. It's awful. But don't you see in the story how it is used If they do not pause at that point to have a meal, then they miss the Midianite traders. If they do not stop and eat, those Ishmaelites pass by. Do you see it? If if they don't have that meal, Joseph lies in that pit. He isn't sold. He starves to death. Do you not see it again? God in action. And then the last thing. Would you do, do this for me and look at the final line? of this portion of Scripture. And I don't think there's anyone here who cannot see the providential hand of God here. I'll read it to you. Meanwhile, the Midianites have sold Joseph in Egypt to... to Potiphar. They sold him to an officer of Pharaoh. (laughs) The captain of the guard. garden, that anticipates the rest of the story. It's a story that we know, but do you not read that and just go, wow. I mean, to see God's hand in action, that's impossible to read that and not say, God, you are at work here. At work to bring Joseph, yes, to Egypt. And look at that detail. At work to rise Joseph up out of that to a place of prominence that he might save his people from starvation, Thankfully, friends, we will return to the gracious, good providence of God in this sermon series, because it's so dear to the people of God. I just got to end by saying, if you are a Christian this morning, going through the most terrible time, if you are suffering as a Christian this morning, be reminded by God's words that God is involved in your present circumstances today. Is that you? Are you going through a tough, desperate time? Understand that you are not going through that alone. Understand that you are not going through something that is meaningless. God loves you. And God has promised that He will use even this horrible, trying circumstance that you are facing right now. And He will use it not just for good. God will use those circumstances you are in for eternal good. And maybe you need convincing. Where do you look? Where do we always look to see God use evil for good? We look to the cross, don't we? And indeed, in this portion of Scripture, are you not taken by the scruff of the neck? And are you not directed straight to Golgotha? Aren't you? Think about it. These men, they slaughter a goat, they put it on this robe, they present it to Jacob, and God uses that evil for good. Has he not done much more at Calvary? Friends, did God not use the evil of man to have the blood of the eternal scapegoat spilt with the cross? Did God not use the evil, the wickedness of man To have that atoning blood presented to the Father. Presented to the Father for your sin. To pay the punishment for your wickedness. To secure your everlasting salvation. Friends, in Genesis 37, behold your God. He is a God of love and sacrifice. But don't forget it. He is a God who rules over all things, from the greatest to the least. And he does so with his wise and holy providential care.